So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. Welcome to Kafaru Cast, everyone. It's Tuesday morning, and I have the great South Cox with Stalker Stickbows on the other line for, I guess, part two of the uh, the elk hunt. Uh, what's going on, man? Other than building bows? Yeah, back at it. Back to reality. Um, fall colors are going off. Leaves are falling, and the elk have stopped bugling around town here. And I'm uh, still crying from my empty freezer. <laughs> Um, how, um, which I guess is a, pre, a prelude to hear of, uh, of what's to come. Yeah, I was say, when's the last time you've gone with that? It's been a minute since you've, uh, not had a full, full freezer. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, obviously it, I mean, it, it happens, especially with a, a stick bow, uh, uh, in your hand, but you know, do you want to give everybody kind of a uh, kind of an update as far as obviously I, I left off the podcast. I can't even remember what I talked about on the podcast. I think you said you listened to it, but I had left, I think five days in or four, four and a half or five and a half days in whatever it was. And, and do you want to kind of update people from there? Yeah. So, um, the, so I guess we started hunting, we packed in on, um, on that Sunday morning, uh, the, 18th i believe that is and um I, i'm pretty sure that was yeah it was the 18th and then um so i want to touch bases a little bit to try to make this as educational as possible as well as um as uh you know entertaining um i've i've only hunted from basically that the first time i hunted in this unit was i started on the 18th and my reasoning behind that was um, you know, I figured that a lot of times early in the season, the bugle can be pretty slow. So I figured, you know, try to get past most of the muzzleloader season and, you know, catch that last bit of the hunting season. And so far, um, it seems to have worked out pretty well. The last couple of years, we've ran into a guy from Arkansas who, um, just coincidentally has been packing out his bull on, or packing out his camp, already had his bull out, um, the, the, you know, the day that we show up to start our hunt, he's on his way out. So I don't know, maybe he's on to something there as well, or maybe the bugle is just good in that unit all the time. But, um, so we basically started our hunt the same day every every time i think I've, this is the fourth time i've hunted that unit there and uh <clears throat> um you're around the full you know essentially work week there i think pulled out on friday so friday morning when when uh you were packing up to head out uh mitchell and the camera guy and i we went back up towards the head of the drainage again and uh we got on a bull that um, would have, I'm sure would have died except for the, you know, that just that wind up there is just horrid. We got busted so many times this year by the wind and this bull was just walking the side of this ridge, just bugling. And we, 
you know, we played hell trying to trying to catch him. We kept thinking, you know, that he was in a in a betting area, and then we'd sneak in stealth mode, and then he'd be, you know, still two two hundred fifty yards ahead of us. So finally, we realized that he was cruising, looking for chicks, and and uh, so then we sped up our pace, and we ended up catching up to him. Got in just below below him, and I. Uh, um, you know, we finally cow called to him. He bugled right back. And then no sooner did that happen than the wind, which had been consistently blowing downhill, all of a sudden, you know, those morning thermals started to switch on us and start blowing kind of uphill at an angle. Um, so I thought we were going to be okay. Um, and we, moved forward quickly my camera guy and i to try to um to get our our wind better but apparently you know it wasn't enough or uh, or the wind you know blew more directly uphill as it went uphill and, and we end up buggering him out of there and and uh so we backtracked back to where um we had left our backpacks because we had actually dropped our packs and we ended up going geez, probably half a mile, you know, thinking that we were only, you know, a hundred yards from the bull when we dropped our backpacks and not realizing that he was actually moving. So we went back to our backpacks and I was taking a nap and, and then, uh, um, my camera guy woke me up and, and, uh, said he was having some, you know, some medical issues and, and, uh, needed to leave. And, um, you know, I woke up from nap was still pretty groggy and was my head just kind of spinning. I'm trying to figure out what the heck. And, and, uh, so he ended up packing out and, uh, that was what day five and a half essentially. And, and we were, you know, had potentially up to, um, I think it was, 12 and a half, 13 days back in there. So um, Mitchell and I were just kind of, you know, like, okay, you know, what now? And he had been, he had filmed um, just as an ancillary camera, he had filmed your, um, your uh, kill shot there on his iPhone. He had that new iPhone 14 and it was actually some pretty decent video. So we figured, well, you know, we'll just initially my camera guy said he needs to just run out, you know, to town and he'd be back in a day or two or so. And, and, uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot of hope there. The younger guy, super good dude, but, um, you know, super uh, energetic and great physical condition, kept up on the mountain, no problem, had a super positive attitude, always had a smile on his face. It was, you know, a real pleasure to hunt with, but just unfortunate that he had, you know, whatever issues he was dealing with there. And, and uh, so we never saw, to make a long story short, we never saw him again. Um, and uh, so Mitchell and I, um, you know, came back. It was kind of a weird, you know, feeling. I, um, to go from a camp of four people to all of a sudden a camp of two people. And, you know, we were still getting into elk and all that. But um, I think you you had left shortly. I can't remember when the rain started and when it ended exactly. But I, it, I left the, when uh, it ended. Rain... <laughs> I left. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So things definitely seemed to change a bit after the rain, like it, that weather, that uh, storm front that came through definitely seemed to slow, slow things up because like that first couple days that we hunted there were tons of bugles and they seemed to be going most of the day if i remember correctly is that your your memory your recollection there as well yeah i mean uh you know i sometimes it didn't really get popping off till you know nine ten in the morning and uh that 
two different bulls we killed, uh, or excuse me, two different bulls we called in were uh, early afternoon, and then the one that that I killed was at like twelve thirty or noon or something like you know midday. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. It's interesting that um, you know we sometimes we'd hear some bulls while we were hiking to wherever we were going in the dark, but it didn't seem like things really started to kick off until the sun you know, almost hit where the, wherever the animals were. And then, you know, bulls start bugling and then pretty soon it would get a chorus of them going, but it was rare that it was from first light, you know, on that we would hear them. It was almost like an hour, hour or so after first light before they'd really kick off. And, and I, I kind of found that to be true almost the whole hunt. Um, you know, another oddity that um, that we found as we went is that um, a lot of these bulls that had cows pushed them all the way to the highest timber on the ridge, like, you know, to the point where they were against the alpine, or if the timber went all the way to the top of the ridge, they were literally at the top of the ridge. And it seemed like they were trying to keep them, you know, hidden away from other bulls that, um, you know, that didn't have cows or even just other bulls, period. And uh, I arrived at a conclusion um, while we were up there that there's two kinds of bulls. There's capitalists and socialists. And the socialists are the uh, the Bernie Sanders of the bulls that it's like everybody gets their, you know, their, what they've got. And it's like you don't, you know, you don't go out of your way to try to get any more. You don't try to cause a ruckus or anything. And then there's the capitalist Donald Trump's. It's like the cutthroat. I'm going to go get whatever I, you know, whatever I can. And every, I deserve everything. And most of those bulls in that unit are socialists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is what I, is what I found, man. They just like, they'll sit there and they'll bugle at each other from a distance, you know, but they don't, there's very few of them that are going to go, you know, looking to kick some ass and go get, you know, some more, more cows or, or willing to, you know, if they have cows, they're willing to go risk what they've got to get more, even if they think that they're the biggest bull on the block. It's, it's kind of a weird dynamic there. And I guess maybe, you know, over the years, obviously, it's had to have sorted itself out and they've probably figured out through, um, you know, being aggressive and, and losing cows that it doesn't pay off that, that kind of gamble, but well, we, it's kind of interesting phenomenon. We didn't bring a bugle tube the first two days. I don't know if we brought one the third mm-hmm. day and I don't know when we did bring one, if that was that good of an idea. Uh, yeah. For the simple fact, it was cool to hear them make noise, but I mean, they didn't, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've had this conversation and not argument, but in, in high bull to cow ratio areas, I just don't think it's a great idea to um, to bugle a lot. And that the, the kind of sneaking in close and some mild cow calling definitely seems to work out better. I'm not saying you couldn't go in there and bugle in a bull. It's just, I mean, you can watch them like... Yeah, they'll bugle back and then they walk away. And even when you're close up, I mean, there was a few times where we had that atypical, you know, I say primo setup, but they're on, you know, private land a little bit different where we're within 100 to 80 and bugle where that bull should come in and they do not, they don't want, they don't want to play. They don't, they don't fuck with it or mess with it. So, yeah. Right. 
Well, well, I even found, you know, or seemed to observe while we were hunting out there that a lot of times, even just getting in close and cow calling, every bull up there assumes that every cow has got a bull in tow. And so they almost treat any um, form of communication from cow or bull as it's going to be, a, there's going to be a bull around too. Um, and I don't know that I, you know, that went the whole uh, 12 and a half days of hunting up there and saw cows, but maybe a couple of times where they didn't have a bull with them. And, uh, and so it's almost like some of them, some of, you know, and we definitely had times where we cow called and they came in on a string. Um, you know, for instance, the bull that you killed and then the one that we got into the first afternoon. And then I called the bull in. I haven't, I don't think I told you about this one yet, but so I, um, I don't know if I took you. you yeah, yeah. Remember when we went up on that hillside in the left hand canyon and, um, we went into that bedding area. We went up, you know, hiked up that ridge to that, where that wall was. It was kind of my marking point. And then we just cut side hill and actually we ended up coming in below this bedding area that I, that I thought we were going to run right into, but I got on the wrong elevation. Um, but I went back into that bedding area towards the end of the hunt, and I, um, I, I walked in about, oh, it was probably 10 in the morning. I had a good wind blowing down Canyon right in my face, and I came in, and I, um, and I checked it, and there's nothing in there. And I said, wow, I'm just going to lay down here and take a nap. And I was maybe... 75 yards above this bedding area and so I passed out was sleeping and I thought I heard like this little weak bugle you know while I was in got a REM sleep in my nap and I woke up and I kind of got you know dug some food out of my pack and I ate lunch and I'm sitting there and I packed my pack back up and I was about to take off to the top of the ridge up where you killed your bull um, where actually where we called your bull out of that strip of timber but on the other side of the ridge um, and I said, oh, I'm just going to do a couple cow calls. And so I cow called, and I'll be damned if a bull hadn't come into that bedding area while I was sleeping 75 yards above it. Fortunately, I guess it wasn't snoring too loud. But uh, that bull came in on a string just like the first two bulls that we tried calling in the beginning of the hunt. And uh, first he walked out of the bedding area and he's down below me about, you know, 60 yards or so. And he started raking the grass with his antlers and tearing it up and bugling. And, and uh, I was, um, I was standing behind a tree to so use that for cover and uh cow called to him again. And he came, started coming up the hill and at about, 35, 40 yards, he kind of starts to veer to the side a little bit. So um, I'm ranging him as he comes in, and I, I found an opening um, that he was going to walk into after he came behind a little screen of trees. So um, he was 34 yards and uh, or 32 yards, and as he um, – starts to come out from behind that screen of trees instead of coming out broadside he kind of turns and starts walking away slightly so he's kind of steep quartering and i figure okay he's 34 i cow called stopped him drew back and my 30 my point on is 35 so i figured i had him aced but i guess he walked further than i thought and he's probably closer to 38 my arrow went dropped right between his legs it was just a heartbreaker it's a nice you know probably 290 class six point um but that was 
that was a, you know one of the bulls that I had that kind of came in, and I was hunting solo at that point. So I think you mentioned on the first podcast that Mitchell, my caller, was dealing with plantar fasciitis, and and uh, he had been. Um, you know, pretty crippled up on his left foot. Well, after, you know, in the beginning of the hunt, he was pretty crippled up. So he was kind of compensating um, by kind of hobble hopping, you know, with his right leg. And so after 10 days of, you know, doing 10, sometimes 10 plus miles a day, it started to mess up his right knee. So now he had a, a bad wheel on his left leg, uh, you know, left foot there. And then uh, his right knee was acting up too. So um, by day 10, um, he just said, dude, I, I just need to take it easy. I need to make sure I can make it back to work and, you know, be okay. And if you shoot a bull, then I can help you pack it out, but I'd be best off just to stay in camp. And so I hunted the last three days by myself. And that was one of the scenarios where I called in, you know, a bull just solo like that, which worked out really well, except for my shot. Um, but I, I you know, it just kills me looking back on that hunt. There's, there's no reason why my tag shouldn't be notched. I had ample opportunities. I mean, like I said, the wind got me a number of times, um, meant not a number. I mean, many times it, it busted us. Just that wind seems to swirl really bad in that area. I don't know, you know, if it's like it's in the rest of the unit, but it just drives drives me crazy up there. I've actually, I made some notes on, and it's hard for me to keep track, you know, of day-to-day in chronological order, but there's, um, I think it was probably day nine, I, no, day eight, um, day eight or nine, I got into, um, Mitchell and I were walking up the bottom of the main Canyon and that burn, you know, kind of on the right is a, it just burn off this whole hillside, but we've been seeing bulls up towards the top of the burn, you know, just kind of below the ridge line, And we heard a bull bugle up there. So I took off, um, up the hill and I was trying to beat the changing thermals. So in this area is super bad and deadfall. So it's like, you're constantly Constantly, you know, climbing up and over them and, and trying to hurdle them and banging your shins and your knees and stuff. And so, and, and you're pulling a steep uphill grade at the same time. So I was trying to haul ass as much as I could. And, and, uh, Mitchell was dealing with his foot and then also some, <laughs> <laughs> some mountain house issues. So he was having to make multiple stops on the way up the ridge there. But um, I got, I finally got up to this big bench that bull was on and uh, it was kind of like right as the wind was changing. Um, and it's not very far from the top of the ridge. And it, when I got up onto the edge of the bench, the bull was probably 250 yards from me, and the, I checked the wind, and it's blowing right to the bull. And it's like, oh, great. You know, I come all the way up this ridge, only to get busted by the wind again. And uh, so I'm sitting there trying to recover from my cardio exercise, and uh, and that bull's still sounding off, and it's like, that bull should have smelled me by now for sure. So I figure, okay, there's something that's going on with the wind between that bull and I. So I started moving toward him and sure enough, the wind is coming off the top of the ridge and blowing downhill through like this little gully and it's pushing, you know, the, what's starting out as kind of the weak morning uphill thermals. It's pushing them downhill. So I, I got, um, 
oh, probably another 100, 150 yards closer to that bull, and he'd moved up onto this open hillside, and I could see there was no way for me to get on him. So, uh, meanwhile, um, all of his bugling caused another elk to start um, sounding off, and uh, he was kind of more um, to my left up canyon and up the hill above me, so I decided to go after him because I had better wind on him. And so I took off after him and ended up going all the way up to, like, within probably 50 yards of the top of the ridge. We had... A couple of days before, we had glassed across the canyon and had seen a herd of elk that were literally like in the alpine up at the top on this little knoll. And it looked like or sounded like there was a bull that was up there. So I snuck all the way up there. And as I'm about to peek my head over this knoll, I could smell, you know, this bull. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to poke my head up. and He's going to be laying there in his bed. I'll have a, you know, sub 30 yard shot on this bull. I, I pop my head up and all it is is a handful of elk beds that are freshly peed in and uh, i had the wind good the whole time so i think it was just you know they had been using those beds and peeing in them so much that they just reeked really bad and i don't know what you know what happened to the bugling bull i heard up there but i ended up uh getting on a um a four-point mule deer up there on the top of that he's bedded in a little um little uh patch of of uh a brush up there and so i i went up there to the edge and and down below me is a big bowl that's right at the top of the ridge and there's two bowls in that bowl and uh one of them um worked his way down lower in the bowl and and the other one uh started uh he was raking his antlers on a tree and so i just sat up there and i'm watching him he's probably oh 250, 300 yards below me, something like that. And he goes over to this wallow, and I think he's going to start wallowing. And he, granted, and I'll listen to this, he, so he just crosses a creek of fresh, you know, rock spring water and goes over this wallow and starts drinking out of this nasty wallow. And then he walks down the hill right in the middle of this uh, basin. He starts raking his antlers on a pine tree. So I'm like, sweet, I'm going to try and close the distance while he's raking. So I take off. Um, down this hill, super steep hillside. Uh, he's like I said, now he's about two to 250 yards from me. Make a long story short, I end up getting into the bottom of the basin with them. The wind is still coming off the top um, of the ridge, but by now the sun's up a little bit higher, so it's starting to warm those thermals a little bit more. So now instead of a straight down thermal, now they're kind of alternating between straight down and then blowing up canyon slightly. So I get into sub 35 yards on this bull and the the thermals are starting to do a little get a little more shifty and they're blowing a little bit more side hill and i get now i'm you know less than 30 yards from this bull and he he's raking on a tree quartering away from me um actually he's directly away from me so i need to take a couple of side steps to get a shot at him quartering as he's raking um and as I'm taking these side steps, I'm inching a little closer at the same time, but there's a, a pine tree that's kind of between the bull and I, but a little bit to the right, but one of the boughs is hanging down, covering the bulk of his vitals. And so I'm trying to, you know, 
kind of edge along. I want to get uphill more, but the more I get uphill, the greater the chance I'm, he's going to catch my thermals because that scent stream is like blowing side hill right below him. So I'm starting to get you know pretty nervous about that wind would only have to shift a few degrees and he's going to smell me. Um, so I, uh, I'm kind of eyeball and what I can do about trying to get underneath that branch. And just then he stops raking and his legs kind of stiffen. And I had ranged him at 27 yards. And uh, so I squat down to try to get underneath that pine bough and figuring he's going to, you know, any second now he might blow out. And so I drew back and shot and I just cut hair on the bottom of his brisket. I just couldn't get enough elevation without clipping the bottom of that pine bough to be able to get it up into his chest cavity and thought I might be able to sneak it in for a heart shot, but it just didn't, didn't pan out. And, uh, that was probably, um, you know, had I have had, you know, another 30 seconds or something, it might have ended up being the best opportunity of the trip for me, you know, or probably was the best opportunity of the trip for me. It was a pretty nice six-point bull that was, you know, again, probably in that 290 range or so, good heavy, <clears throat> heavy rack on him. Um, really nice bull. And so he ended up um, taking off down the hill. Unbeknownst to me, Mitchell ended up calling him and that other bull that was in that same basin into him, um, called him right in. To, I think one bull was like 18 yards, and uh, he had video of it. And the other bull, the one that I had um, that I had uh, cut hair off the brisket, was a little bit more spooky. And I think he got him into 30 or something like that. Um, but he had one in in range for you know well over 10 minutes, as I remember, if I recall correctly. It was just crazy. Um, and I never ended up being able to find Mitchell the whole rest of the day. Um, I ended up going after that original bull that was bugling, <clears throat> um, chased him across the, the, down the ridge line, you know, half a mile or so, and ended up almost down um, above camp. Got on a, like a 330 class bull down there that I pushed. Um, well, I didn't push, but uh, that the bull that I was chasing went uh, around the corner and bumped into him, and they got in a fight and were locking up antlers. Just a beautiful bull. That that 330 bull was much bigger than the one that I was, you know, had been chasing after, but. <clears throat> Unfortunately, one of his cows busted me and started barking, and then uh, that was that was over. So um, I ended up uh, killing the mid-afternoon, waiting for the thermals to switch, and, and uh, just the wind was all kinds of goofy. And then there was a bull that was on the other side of the um, canyon that had been bugling quite a bit. So I dropped down to the bottom of the canyon, back up the other side, and I uh, went after those. Um, got on there's three bulls and there's a herd bull and two smaller satellites a small four point and like a five that was you know probably in that 220 range or something and uh by this time um i think this was day nine maybe um i was like i'm shooting you know any bull and maybe even a cow if it gives me a good shot and uh so i i i found i got on that five point satellite bull and uh had him at 35 yards quartering away and um shot and he jumped the string on me and then while I was, um, so I was pretty dejected by then. So I was heading back across those benches 
that we had climbed up to that that really killer route that goes you know climbs up I want see what would that have been the west the south side of the canyon um, there's a, a it's like a finger ridge that comes down and it's like the one spot probably in the whole mountain range that you can climb up to the you know basically you can gain a lot of elevation without having to hurdle over a lot of uh, of blowdowns um but it was up in that area where those nice big benches are and i was coming across those benches and i got into a, just a smoker bull it's probably 340 or so <clears throat> and uh he was bugling um in response to when i shot at that small five he ran around the corner and i think he ran right through his harem of cows so he that fired him up and i i ran into this problem um quite a few times on this hunt where i was uh having a hard time gauging from a distance standpoint where those bugles were coming from. And it was pretty funny when um, Aaron and Mitchell and the camera guy and I were hunting together, you know, bull would sound off and we'd all look at each other and point in the direction that we heard the bugle come from. And most of the time we were all pointing in the same direction, but there were several times when we were all pointing in different directions. And, and I, uh, I was having a heck of a time, um, you know, a good portion, good percentage of the time gauging how far I was from the bugle. And this, and I kept overrunning, you know, where I think in the bugles 200 yards away. And so I was closing the distance fast and I'd end up bumping the bull. Well, I ended up bumping a spike that was in his herd. And so he ended up moving down the ridge a little bit. <clears throat> and, uh, I don't know that he trusted really what that spike had seen. And, and so they only went maybe 300 yards and, and then that bull, you know, they all stopped and started feeding again. And that big bull was, oh, was bugling. And then on the next bench down below me, there was two or three other smaller bulls and they were bugling. And so they, he kept that big bull going and, and I'm starting to get, it's getting close to being dark now. And I, uh, so I, I snuck in on that 340 class bull and um, got to probably 75 yards or so from him and that the bigger bull kind of went up to the edge of that bench and was looking over at the smaller bull just screaming at him pissed that this other you know bull was near him and uh, so I decided to heck with it I'm gonna I had packed my bugle with me that day so I um, I bugled at him and I think because that big bull you know, had seen the other bulls and knew kind of they, you know, were in the vicinity and knew how big they were. He felt comfortable with them in close proximity to him. But then when I bugled, he, I was an unknown bull. And so he gathered his cows and went further down Canyon. <clears throat> so I figured it was done. You know, at that point it was getting real close to being dark. And, and, uh, so I just took off, um, heading back down towards that trail I'd mentioned, um, a few minutes ago, the one easy one with the, without the blowdowns. And, I uh, and I was coming out into this edge of the, the edge of the basin that, um, that, that trail comes up to. And I, all of a sudden I heard clack, 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 clack. And I was like, holy cow, there's two bulls in there fighting. And I still had enough, barely enough light to shoot. So I just took off running towards the sound of the um, fighting bulls. And when I popped over, it was that big 340 bull that was 
fighting with another bull that was about the same size as him, and they're about eight, 75, 80 yards from me, and it was just like, this is the, you know, these were the times when it just killed me that I didn't have a camera guy with me, because I could have gotten such awesome footage of this, uh, you know, these bulls fighting, of me missing that, you know, that uh, bull that was raking the pine tree. I just, even though I didn't kill a bull by the end of that 12 and a half days, I was into elk, you know, every day and, and I had multiple shot opportunities throughout the hunt and had multiple, you know, close encounters with bulls throughout the hunt. And we would have had an incredible, you know, film, even though I didn't shoot something, we would have still just collected tons of footage. So I'm closing in on these two bulls fighting. They end up locking up four or five times. At one point, I got to 45 yards of the two bulls fighting, and that's like 40 yards is is kind of like my max distance, but I had been, while I was up there, I had been shooting at 45 and found that the bottom, or rather the top of my shelf that my arrow sits on is a point on for me at 45. So really, you know, at 45 yards, I had a pretty good solid aiming reference, and I only needed, you know, a, a few seconds to more to be able to get a shot off, but these bulls were, you know, they weren't really standing still they they'd lock up and then they'd start posturing and at one point they when when i first saw them after they initially locked up they were actually walking parallel kind of posturing walking directly towards me and they helped close that distance quite a bit and then that's how i initially got to that 45 yards um as they came up to me and then they locked up again i ranged them while they were fighting and then i was just getting ready to you know draw my bow and they turned and started going back down the hill in the opposite direction so um, I, you know, I struggled to get closer. I think I, I got like 50 yards and 60 yards um, while they were fighting, um, and then they they went into the basin a little further, and I took off running after them, and then the, the wind ended up getting me like right the the last you know situation that I saw them, but would have been made some incredible you know nature videography that I've been able to get the two of those giant beasts fighting because those were probably two of the biggest bulls that I saw of the trip there that were locking up. One of them I think had eight points on one side and I don't, I didn't get a good look at the other, but it was a, it was a heck of a bull. Um, and, uh, then Mitchell and I, I think like the day after the camera guy left, we ended up going up to all the way to the head of the Canyon, which was, I think it was 4.3 miles from where we were camped at all the way to the back of the Canyon. And it was in the evening and we got, we heard of, um, you know, bull bugling back there. So we kind of made a beeline back towards this bull and I spotted him bedded in the grass, in the bottom of the Canyon and some, um, burnt timber and i ended up getting on his bulls um or rather his cows i got into i was between 20 and 30 yards from his herd of cows for 20 minutes and there was a bull on the other side of the canyon that he was totally preoccupied with they're screaming back and forth so he kept leaving his cows and you know walking a hundred yards towards him bugling and tearing the ground up and all this. And at one point I just, you know, I was like, okay, I, I was squatted down behind, um, some bushes 
and I needed to just stay put and wait till he came back into his cows. And uh, so, and the wind fortunately had held, you know, was holding for me. It was the evening now, so the thermals were a little more consistent. They were blowing downhill, down canyon, and I was just on the down, you know, down canyon side of his cows. And fortunately, they weren't, you know, feeding. Um, quickly they kind of were just stationary feeding in one spot and uh he came in and he was 30 yards um quartering towards me stood for probably 30 seconds and then so i'm just you know tension on the string bow in the in the ready to draw position arrow knocked i know the distance to him and in one motion, he kind of turns, hooks one of his cows and does a 180 and just pushes one of his cows out of the group. And uh, and then it wasn't maybe five minutes later that I was, you know, I'd still sitting there waiting for him to come back. And uh, I couldn't see most of the cows now. They had kind of fed just a little bit out of my sight behind these bushes. So I kind of lifted my head up a little bit to look over the bushes. And apparently one of the cows was looking right in my direction and caught my movement. And, you know, they all blew out of there. It was just, it was a dumb mistake on my point, on my part there. You know, I should have just stayed, stayed totally stationary like I was. And, and that bull was a, it was a really big six by seven. That was probably again in that, in that 340 range, he was, um, Mitchell's got some video of him and I'll try to post that up on my Instagram page. Um, he was a just really long main beams and I mean, exceptionally long main beams. He had a huge distance between his third and his fourth, like, like almost like he was missing a point midway along, along there. It was just such long main beams. It was an incredible bull. Um, we ended up actually getting on that bull. Um, another time a little bit later in the hunt and uh, I never got you know close to him as close to him as I had been there but we ended up you know uh, called in one of his cows Mitchell called this cow and like a couple of yards with um, from him we were standing in like a thick growth of like Christmas trees and and uh, trying to call him out of the bottom there um, up where he had been bedded before they had dropped down and you know during the evening feeding time there and we were trying to call him back in and we had got him I got him at one point uh, I think it was 60 yard or Mitchell did rather to 60 yards um, but I had so many opportunities had I had a compound you know of potential shots between 50 and 60 yards throughout that hunt I I mean there were there were days that I could have killed four or five bulls in a day that were in that 50 to 60 yard range but just I couldn't get you know into stick bow range on them um let's see I'm just trying to think here. Um, you covered the fire starter thing um, uh, pretty extensively on your podcast there on the on the first one, but I want to just reiterate like how important having a good fire starter and probably more than we packed along on our trip because I uh, you know had we had dealt with more um, adverse weather you know later in that trip it would have been pretty miserable. Um, I had that that uh, um, 
stove in my in my sawtooth there, and man, what a game changer! And you had pointed out that um, that uh, you know dura logs are like the the magic cheating thing for those little stoves, and because we were playing hell um, trying to get just a outside campfire going, um, the monsoon. We had had a really good monsoon year. In fact, the grass in some of those meadows that I'd walked through was literally up to my armpits. It was ridiculous. Some of the tops of the heads of the the grass, it was an amazing year. But what that did was all the firewood out there was, you know, was pretty damp. And uh, so it really made getting a fire going challenging. And so having some good fire starter and that stove in the, in the sawtooth um, really helped on drying out clothes. Um, but if you're going in, like on horseback, um, bringing in a case of Duralogs would have made our lives a lot easier. And because uh, what I was doing, the the fire, the firewood was so damp that I don't think I could have got a fire going in in that little stove. So I was taking coals out of our campfire from the outside, and then um, laying, you know, putting a bed of coals in the bottom of that stove, and then laying some of the um, twigs on top, and and then getting a fire going that way. So that worked out pretty well. Um, but that was, um, you know, that was definitely something that I would. Um, I would make sure that I brought more of, and, and I, I have a, a saw, a hand saw. It was ridiculously large. I actually bought it for clearing, you know, blowdowns out of the trail, and it's uh, it's called a silky. If you, I bought it off of eBay, and I saw, you know, the the Forest Service workers were using them, and it's like a three foot long blade, and it's. Um, got a super aggressive tooth on it there, but it makes short work of cutting down blowdowns. I actually ended up giving it to the packer because I, since, you know, if we're going to be using this horse packer now, I won't have a need for it myself, but I bought a smaller version of it and the blades like 14 or 15 inches for us for camp firewood for next year. But a hatchet would have been um, really handy because then you can, you know, cut the, the firewood there, split it, and then get um, that dry uh, heartwood exposed. You know, the fire would have caught a lot more readily. So next year I'm going to have a hatchet in there as well. Um, Man, let me – let me. Uh, the, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to um, – going to get on to the last day bowl. So um, go ahead and, and uh, chime in there with what you're. Oh, I just, I had a few different people comment on certain things and um, I wanted to touch on those, but we can wait till you finish up. Go ahead with uh, the last day bowl and then I'll bounce some of the, you know, the, the, the different questions and comments I got off the podcast and in social media and everything, but go ahead. Sure. Okay. Actually, before I get to the last day bowl, I'll, I'll kind of share with you like a, a tactic that Mitchell um, uses on public lands bulls and where, you know, it's a lot harder. Um, the bulls aren't bugling and, and he uses uh, still hunting pretty pervasively. Um, and we spent a couple of days using that tactic and he kept on reining me in because I kept on getting into like cover ground mode and uh, so um, you know just moving you know moving a couple of steps stopping and glassing and listening and and we got on bulls a couple of times using um, that tactic and, uh, I, and I think that you know moving along doing that and 
you know, stopping every 100, 150 yards or so, cow calling. And, and uh, we actually got up where we blew a bull out of his bed at like 15 yards, bedded in some nasty, you know, thick blowdowns and stuff. But um, there were a couple of instances where we got on, uh, got, you know, in close on elk using that tactic where, like, as we got later in the hunt, and whether it was because we are pounding that same canyon so frequently, I don't know if it was that that was getting the bulls, you know, a little bit more call shy as far as them, you know, proactively bugling, or whether it was just the, you know, getting towards the end of the season and things were kind of winding down a bit, and they so they weren't bugling as much. But I, I got a good feeling that a lot of it was the amount of pressure that we were putting on that one canyon because we had an outfitter that had a camp that had been in there and you know uh, presumably had tagged out and left but the outfitter tent was still there we had another hunter from um out of state that had uh come in and was hunting the same canyon we were and then there was that guy from arkansas that had been in there and had killed a good bull and uh, i don't know how many days he had been in there for and then us you know going in there you and i with our two tags so <clears throat> that same canyon had got quite a bit of hunting pressure. So by the time, you know, we were, you know, pushing 12 days in there, the bulls were probably understandably quite a bit quieter than the first week, first few days that we had been in there. Um, but it was, you know, making that, making us having to adopt or adapt rather to uh, different, um, different hunting tactics. And that still hunting was one of those things that we had tried, um, that last day bull. So, um, it was literally the last evening of the last day and the last, those last two hours of the hunt. Um, I was, uh, I was way up at the top of the ridge above camp, um, like all the way at the top where I'd finally gotten cell service and, there's a basin down below me. I was calling secret basin because it's, you can't see it from below. You can see it on the topo map, you know, looking at the contour lines, but you can't see it from below. So I just assumed that nobody, you know, had gone up there because you have to climb that same ridge all the way to the top. It's about 1500 vertical feet of elevation gain and it's through blowdowns all the way up there. So I had assumed that, you know, that outfitter certainly wasn't dragging any clients up there. And the one dude from out of state didn't seem like he was in shape that we saw and the the guy from um arkansas i think was hunting the back of the main basin where we had been so i assumed that you know there's probably a pocket full of bulls up there and i spent day 10 and day 13 up there and and sure enough um got into them in fact if you look back on my instagram um there's a big five point that i posted up some video of and that's where that big bull that big five was up there and there was another good six that was in that 300-inch range and then a handful of satellite bulls. But I was coming off the top of the ridge, and uh, I heard a bull bugle um, in the, down in the basin. And uh, this basin kind of um, 
there's a, a little meadow in the bottom, and then it goes out to the edge to a bench that drops off, um, hits another bench, and then drops down to a lower basin. And it sounded to me like that bull was beyond the the meadow and out at the edge of the bench. And I was quite a ways from him at this point, so I took off after him and dropped down through the trees, and I was listening for the bugles, and I'd kind of finally got it through my thick skull about, you know, overrunning these bugles. I wanted to be really careful. So I I was just coming out to the edge of that meadow and I thought the bull was on the far side of the meadow. And I happened to look to the right as I'm coming up to the edge of the meadow. And, uh, there's, there's a bull, a nice big six point, and he's raking the grass, um, you know, kind of like he's making a dry wallow, and, uh, and then bugles, and he's just going to town, you know, tearing grass up. He's got grass in his antlers, and it's flying all over, and there's a little water source, and he's taking his front leg and splashing himself in the water, and uh, I'm only maybe 60 or 75 yards from this bull when I spot him. And so I take a backward step. So I get some trees between he and I drop my pack, took my boots off. And here's where I made my mistake is I didn't tuck my pant legs inside my socks. Um, my, my pants had gotten wet and then muddy. And so I had like these crusty pant legs that almost formed like bell bottoms. So if you think about, you know, your, your pant leg going over your boot, then they stay fairly stationary as you're walking because you, the, the increased diameter of your boot keeps them from moving around on your, on your ankle. But once you take your boots off, then you're all of a sudden, now you're down to the diameter of your ankle and then you're your pant legs become a lot more floppy. So it's really, and I do this every time when I'm hunting mule deer, I, I tuck my pant legs into my socks. Well, um, I, I don't know why I didn't this time. Maybe it was the, like, I felt like I needed to hurry. And again, this is another mistake I've been making repeatedly throughout our, our hunt was that um, every time I got onto a bull, uh, you know, that was bugling or something. I felt like I had to try to close the distance as quickly and quietly as I could, um, you know, to try to get in close because that, you know, whatever that bull was up to, he might just decide to turn and walk away at any moment. And so I want to take advantage of, you know, that bull being in a stationary position, you know, raking, making that kind of that wallow that he was doing. And uh, so I didn't tuck my pant legs into my socks and I was able to sneak in close the distance I was probably 30 to 40 yards from this bull um, and I had maybe five to eight feet more a couple of you know a few more steps to to uh, to go and then I was going to be able to pop out and I'd have a shot at about probably 30 to 35 yards and I think my pant legs swished together and he caught some sound, didn't really know what it was, but he stopped and he was listening. He was kind of looking around and he went back to raking again. And I took another, you know, step or two. And I think my pant legs swished together again. And then he just kind of got like suspicious that there was something around that he didn't like. And then he just kind of lifted his head up and, and just basically walked away. And whether he heard my pant legs or not, but that was like my my last opportunity of the hunt. And it was, man, it was such a damn good opportunity, but it was another simple oversight that I made that I, you know, that 
all along throughout the hunt. I most of the time it was me overrunning a bugle and I'd bump into one of the cows or something. But uh, there's just like the the devils in the details on a lot of times when you're bow hunting. There's such small margins for error, and then when you're trying to get you know under 40 yards, and those margins for error become tighter and they become more critical and it's it's like the smallest of details you need to be paying attention to but that was like the last heartbreaker and it kind of became like a situation where you feel like as that hunt progresses you can feel it slipping away from you um but through the whole hunt um i i you know I was constantly getting into elk, so I knew that no matter what, it's like at any point in time, my luck could change just like that last evening, and I could have a great opportunity, and it could, you know, come together at any moment, Um, but it was like one of those hunts where no matter what you did, it was just like destined not to come together and i've had those hunts before on mule deer never experienced it on elk before um but it was like that was that was the longest backcountry hunt i think that i've ever had in my life most of them you know in like 10 days if i've gone the duration but going 13 days it was uh it was a hell of an experience i learned a lot i got to know a bunch of new country um and uh you know, the the last three days of the hunt, like by, I think it was day eight, or I can't remember if it was day eight or day nine, I was pretty deflated and I uh, really had to push myself psychologically to keep going because it was like I was stressing out. My camera guy was gone. It was like my whole purpose, not the whole purpose, obviously, but a big purpose, point of the purpose of going up there was to capture this on video. I mean, the, the main purpose was to fill my freezer with elk meat which feeds my family for the year. But um, a big part of it was try to get it on video and, and, uh, you know, it helps out from the business standpoint and marketing and all that. And, and then also just like you get so much, you know, time and money invested in it. And then uh, Mitchell had taken, you know, two weeks off of vacation time and, and I feel like I'm burning his time and I'm not being productive behind it. And so there's all these stresses you know, all this pressure that you put on yourself. And, uh, and it was like knowing now that the chance of me catching something on video, um, was diminishing. And then once Mitchell, you know, was having his foot and his knee problem, then it was like, okay, well that went out the window. And then finally day 10, I was like able to, was like, okay, just let that go. And just, I let go all those stressors and like, okay, I'm just going to come out here. I'm hunting solo now. I'm just, you know, going to enjoy myself. I haven't done a solo hunt in years. Used to do them all the time when I was mule deer hunting. Uh, But I just, you know, the last three days I really got to like relax, enjoy myself, see some new country I'd never seen before got to go over, you know, ridges and look at the backsides, which I always wondered what they looked like. And so it really kind of, it took that pressure off. And, and I, I actually got to enjoy the last three days of the hunt without that kind of stress. And, and I got to sit down relax and, you know, listen to the, the Aspens wrestling in the wind, enjoy the, you know, the Aspens turning gold and red and all that. And, and I uh, listening to the elk bugle and, um, 
So it was, a, it was really a much more um, fulfilling experience that last three days than it was those middle few days when I first, you know, it was like the things were, the wheels were coming off seemingly. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of, uh, I guess I wanted to finish this up a little bit with some questions and, and maybe some things I was going to throw out when you're talking about like with gear and uh, things like that. One, one question, uh, one guy specifically had asked, and it was about last year's hunt. Um, and it, uh, one, a reply to, to what questions he had. And then two, kind of a, maybe a reality check for, for some people. Um, the, the distance you had walked last year, um, I thought was you were pushing 24 to 26 miles total, getting the elk out. Was I close on that one or was it a little less, a little more? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I think you're right there in the ballpark. Um, cause it was 9.9 miles from our base camp to the trailhead, and it's 4.3 miles from our camp to the back of the basin. So, and then, uh, you know, I didn't do that full round trip twice there, but um, that's, you know, that's 14 miles there basically right there. And then we went back to the back of the basin, got your, or, you know, your bull or, or to the head of the basin, got your bull. There's six miles right there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was definitely, you know, in the mid twenties, somewhere right around there. And I, I think what it is, is the, when you base something off of what you did compared to what somebody else is doing, and I'm not, um, but I'm, I'm not um, saying this for any other re I could run out of where we are. There's rolling hills. It is higher in altitude, but I could not do, because I think I was probably a 21, 20, maybe eight, 19. I don't know how, you know, whatever. I, I was less than you. Uh, and I, but I did have a lot of weight on my back, uh, especially the last four or five miles, but that was relatively easy terrain. And so he had gave some kind of a mathematical equation to me about something he did, and he was averaging 1.6 miles per hour. Um, if you averaged 1.6 miles per hour where we were, um, uh, that that's a problem. Um, meaning, yeah. you going in, we're probably doing three and a half to four uh, on the way in this time. I would assume by the speed you got there and how far ahead of us right. you were. Is that close to what you're thinking? I would say, you know, in between three and three and a half, because I think on the way out, I did 3.1 miles per hour, and I was stepping it out, but I also had that long uphill pull, but that, so that included that, you know, and uh, I stayed ahead of the horses all the way to within like a quarter mile of the uh, of the truck and then I stopped to take some pictures and the horses got ahead of me there but dude I was thrashed man I mean I was sweating like a pig coming up that hill just trying to stay ahead of the horses and I stopped a couple of times and I'm like tapped out okay let the horses go by <laughs> the horse stopped take a breather and then when I got up to go then the horse got started going again and I uh, um, Cameron was laughing, you know, going, he goes, you know, um, he goes, if you want to, you know, if you want to pull over and stop, let me go ahead. That's all fine. And I was like, dude, I'm trying, man. <laughs> and then your horse stopped when I stopped. And then the horse, you know, was pushing me. And so I was hauling ass and I did, I averaged 3.1 miles. But again, that included, 
you know, several miles of good uphill pull. I don't know how much elevation gain there was from the river bottom to the trailhead, but it was, you had to be at least 1,500 feet, if not 2,000. It's a it's a climb, and and so and the reason why I brought this up is is there is things that I am very well. Let's talk about it. The hike out uh, was arguably uh, well, I'd say argue it is ex- much easier than what I did that day. I killed the bull, um, even though the distance I packed that bull down oh, yeah. and got on the trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, I did not want to screw up your your hunt, and you know I'm a grown man, and I've I've hunted solo most of my life. But I'm not going to lie, on the third trip back up <laughs> to the top, I was like, yeah, yeah. it's been a lot easier with well, help. Just walking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no question. I felt bad leaving you. You know, I understood where you're coming from. It's like, you know, if you you basically had, you know. 12 days to pack your bull out at that point. And I've got, you know, the same amount of time to try to shoot a bull. So it makes more sense to, you know, send a hunter hunting. But at the same time, you know, it's like, man, that's a dude. I, I, that was, that was some of the steepest stuff that we had navigated where you had to pack your bull out of. I mean, I can't, I can't um, impress upon people enough how steep that was. It's literally while we were climbing up there that morning, because there was a bugle of a different bull that drew us up that ridge to start with, and I'm literally grabbing vegetation and stuff and pulling myself up the hill in, you know, as I'm climbing, it's that steep that you just reach out and it's right there. It, it was so damn steep, and to carry, you know, the the kind of weight that you were packing out of there, I'm 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 glad, dude. I was silently doing backflips when you said go hunting. <laughs> well, I just looked at it like I can I I could take the next day off, which I did, or the next morning because I'm uh-huh. like, okay. Um, I'm going to make two or three trips. I tried to, I, I couldn't, I made it a couple hundred yards and I couldn't, couldn't do it. And, um, but I mean, you know, the point being is, uh, you know, I probably traveled, I don't know how far it was down a mile total maybe, or, you know, then a mile back. So really not that much distance. Uh, but it almost well, killed horizontal me. distance. Oh, yeah. The horizontal <laughs> distance was probably 200 yards in that mile. Dude, it was honest. I love it was 570 yards straight line distance. And I don't know. I don't know what that slow. It was at 45 degrees at some parts when I was coming, you know, down. But again, if somebody hears 26 miles and they're basing it off something they just did and got their ass kicked, that was four. You got to keep some realism of what we're doing. We had a fairly good trail. Uh, you know what I mean? Fairly flat. Not much. A lot of incline, not a lot of decline. Um, but, you know, if I killed an elk, let's say like 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 I killed an elk where it was, but I had that to do to get it down to the trail and five miles out that's a two to three day event um you know so and that's what i mean like I, really i we could have gotten done even faster if we were racing like smoking it out of there last year um you know because the terrain is not bad and you people need yeah. to take that into consideration or you won't get the elk out um you know you won't get right. the whole thing out and i think people screw that up frequently yeah, I mean, it, the the distance was what it was. It was a long distance, but it was some of the easiest wilderness 
hiking that I've ever done as far as from a, you know, a trail standpoint. I mean, it's the complete polar opposite of where I hunt mule deer, where I've got, you know, 4,000 plus feet of elevation gain over nine to 10 miles to get to camp. And then it's, uh, you know, it's quite a bit easier once you get to camp to navigate around all the ridge lines to get to your basins. This is the opposite where it's easy relatively speaking, to get to camp, and then once you start elk hunting, then you're paying your dues. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And and, and I, I don't, um, I, uh, I, I, time management, physical fitness management, you know, whatever you want to call it, like when you start running numbers, um, you know, you look at the, you got to look at the terrain, how many trips can, you know, c- can you make it out in one trip, two trip, three trips or whatever, um, yeah, it's just something for people to think about. So when that guy sent that message, I more wanted to comment on, I would choose to hike out uh, 18 miles um, almost as much as I would pick the four or five miles I, I did that day to get my bull out. Because uh, that 18 miles oh, yeah. is flat and I didn't have any weight on my back. Right. Really, You know what I mean? Most of it, I only had 80 pounds or 70 pounds or whatever. Um, so anyway, just something for people to think about. The, the, the next thing I want to talk about is... Um, the down sleeping bag, um, single wall, very small single wall shelters and rain. I think one of the problems that the cameraman had, we, well, we all had to a certain degree, is that condensation on a single wall shelter, if you don't have a liner, especially if you're in a super small, the shelter he had didn't have a lot of, vent, it didn't have any ventilation really. Um, and and, and uh, it was a condensation magnet and his sleeping bag went flat. Um, Mm-hmm. And you want to, even with hydrophobic down, you really want to be careful with that. And I think South, you and I had talked about on the mountain, the devil invented a bivy sack. Um, I think you said yeah, that actually, geez. they yeah. can get condensation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, so you want to be really careful when you're picking what gear you're using, whether it's your bag or your, you know, whatever fire starter and everything else, it can cost a hunt and it can most certainly, if it doesn't cost a hunt, make your life you know, miserable. And so we knew on day, what, three, four, and five, our world was going to suck basically from the weather forecast. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I would have changed for that is I 100% would have brought, I brought one trioxane tab and a new fire starter that I won't ever use again. Um, cause it sucked. If we would have had day three, four, and five, and then day seven, eight, and nine, with that kind of weather, seven, eight, and nine would have been some miserable days. Yeah. And you mentioned that. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Psychologically, that would have been, <laughs> <laughs> that might have been a tap out. <laughs> well, uh, the, you know, the, with everything else, it would have been, uh, it might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> well, the, the fire is literally one of the greatest motivators that a human man knows. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, we uh, built fires and it did not affect the elk hunting. I mean, we had elk yeah. screaming around us all the time. And so building a, a fire on a hillside under some, uh, you know, some some dry cover is hugely motivational. Yeah, that was a game changer. I mean, we we got soaked. And, and something else I wanted to point out, too, like um, 
so we spent a great deal of time in our rain pants, even on mornings when it wasn't raining, just because the grass was getting so wet from dew that, you know, your your pant legs are going to get soaked. And, and I think some people get mistaken that thinking their boots are leaking when, in fact, what's going on is their pant leg gets wet, then the top of their sock gets wet, and then that moisture wicks down your socks into your boots, and it's not the the boot that has gotten wet, it's that your tops of your socks have gotten wet and then then thus, you know, getting the inside of your boots wet, but it wasn't because the boot failed, it was because your socks got the top of your socks got wet. And to be able to stop and, you know, dry out, um, not only, you know, made it a lot more comfortable, but it, it really lifts your spirits a lot. And then, you know, when you're when you're better spirits, you're going to hunt harder and uh, and stick it out, you know, longer. So it, that, that those fires were, you know, definitely. I can't imagine, you know, that that uh, first day that we built those fire that fire there in the left hand canyon. Had we had not, you know, had we hunted or stayed dry, stayed wet the rest of that day because there wasn't much action that day at all. It was pretty. That was, that was our slowest day of elk hunting of the whole trip. It would have sucked, man. It would have. It would have just been an absolutely miserable day. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And you know the rain gear thing. Um, actually, the one day we left, uh, I thought I had my lightweight pants in my pack because I wear generally, unless it's really cold, I just wear my underwear and, and rain gear, and then I'll throw them on. And I don't know what about, I don't know, two hours in, I think I told you, I'm like, man, I left my pants. It looks like I'm hunting in rain gear all day. And as it turns out, I would have anyway, because it rained literally monsoon rain all day long. Mm. Um, but 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 that moisture management, you know, just paying it to trying to keep as much dry as you can. And, and you can't and that again, you can't always keep everything dry. That fire comes into play. Um, what yeah. what are the other things as far as like um, uh some of the things that, you know, maybe changing or not changing, but slightly different, um, you know, would have done, uh, with, 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 uh, when you are, um, uh, packing out an animal or breaking down an animal or, or, or whatever else, um, I got this question a lot and I think people thought I packed that bull farther than I did. I did not pack it that far, but even still I did leave the bull hanging for four days. I think, um, I didn't really give a shit. Uh, day four and five were really a moot point. You get to day six and seven. Yeah. You know, things can go downhill. Um, people asked about rain getting on it and that was something I was kind of thinking about. Um, anyway, I lost zero meat. The meat actually tasted better. And I, I always tell people that if you hang it correctly, but you got to make sure you have it in shade. Uh, you want to make sure that, you know, a lot of people won't tie off the top of the game bags. Flies can get in those, you know, little holes in the top of the game bags, but it's not, I don't know. I know in like seven, eight days, I've left them in snow banks and creeks and shit. Five, six is probably the longest I've left one just hanging. But you've done this a lot too. That is never a worry for me. What about, you know, what about you? Because I think people thought I might have lost some meat. The meat was amazing. So, sure. So I think, I mean, we had 
you know, not not ideal conditions because of the rain, but we had good conditions because of the temperatures. So I don't think the temperatures during that week ever got, you know, north of probably in the 60s during the day. And, and uh, at night, um, we were getting down in the low 30s and the, and the high 20s. I don't remember specifically about those days that it was raining, but um, we definitely got, you know, some frosts. And then after you left, it was, um, you know, every morning there was ice and sometimes ice on the you know on the inside of the tents and stuff so conditions were pretty good and i've i've kept meat longer um in in uh, less ideal conditions than that i um i shot a buck in in nevada one year i can't remember if it was on a sunday or a monday but i didn't get that buck out until friday night and that was, you know, in Nevada, um, and it was getting into the 80s during the day. And what I did was I hung the meat in the shade, and um, and there was a little bit of a thermal corridor in that. It was uh, um, like a willow ditch, and there was a couple of trees in there. So the, there was always, you know, a good thermal um some wind blowing in there. And then during the day, I would take my sleeping bag, turn it inside out so the outside of the sleeping bag was against the meat, and I wrapped my sleeping bag around the meat and then to keep it, you know, cold from the night air. And then, you know, at night, of course, I was, you know, pulled my sleeping bag down and I was sleeping in my sleeping bag. But I was able to keep that meat for it's either five or six days in temperatures that, uh, you know, I never would have considered hanging meat for anywhere near that duration of time, you know, where most guys are shooting their deer and they're hauling ass that, you know, that day or the next morning getting their meat off the mountain. And I kept mine for the better part of a week, you know, up there. So, you know, the, the kind of conditions we were dealing with there in Colorado, really, I, I had, you know, no concerns about your meat while we were up there. Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised uh, that people were asking about it, mostly because of how you and I are pretty out front, uh, up front. Like there's some people that hunt that don't eat as much wild game where uh, we depend on it. You know, we eat it every night. We, we don't, you know, um, mm-hmm. a pretty, pretty anal and diligent about it. And, you know, the other thing too is generally I think it tastes a lot better when it's aging, when it hangs. Like I just shot a buffalo. Yeah. I told them to let it hang for 10 to 14 days in the cooler. And when I say the cooler, it's a very warm cooler, but meaning it's, it's aging. Anyway, it's not a horrible thing. Just be smart about it. Right. And the muscle tissue, the fibers actually break down your meat, you know, becomes more tender as well as it, as it ages like that. Yep. And then having the, um, uh, you know, the different, you know, I, I strongly suggest synthetic game bags, um, you know, the, to use those, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the cotton ones or the real stretchy ones. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, Black Ovis. They obviously make some. We make some, uh, you know, as well. There's other companies that have them out there. But, you know, our, the ones we use, they're a little bit more durable. I'm a huge fan of them. They just they don't shred. But the bottom line, when I got home, I washed them. They just go back in the pack. They're very reusable. They'll last a long time. Some kind of cordage to hang up you know, get it off the ground, hang up, hang up the meat. I mean, this is all pretty rudimentary stuff, but the, uh, the, the, the people that ask me these questions, I'm bringing it up for them. The, the last one too is, you know, make sure you mark where you left your shit. Um, 
I, people are surprised. Um, everything looks different in the dark. And so there mm-hmm. may be a trail, like in my case, I dropped it off by the trail, but I I've been, you know, the rabbit and the tailpipe trick is I have fallen for it before where I'm like, Oh, I'll, I'll find this next morning. I'm hiking up the trail. Nothing looks remotely close to what I thought it would be. And I'm like, well, my game's here somewhere. Make sure and mark it on a GPS, hang a ribbon by the trail where it's at. Um, I've known guys that actually have lost their meat for like four days looking around. And, and it, luckily it didn't go bad, but they just never marked it and uh, thought they could find it. Yeah. I mean, that goes the same thing with, you know, dropping your backpack if you're on a stock or dropping your boots or anything like that. You know, I was constantly marking stuff on my uh, – on you know on onyx there and, and then coming back and and i would i'd always try to find it first without using and then see how close i could come and there were a couple of times when i was like man i'm glad that i marked it because i'd be wandering around here for a while burning you know valuable hunting time oh 100 percent um so the last two things and i want to make sure i make this clear with all the questions i got about would south have killed one with a compound? Well, yes, south, I'm sure, would have killed Dude. several with a, Dude. a, a compound. I, you know, since I started hunting with a stick bow, um, I, I think that probably the first year or two, then you kind of think, you know, you get into a situation, and it's like, damn, I would have killed one with my compound, right, you know, already. Or I would have shot, I would have killed that buck with my compound. And, and after a while, it's like, I, I, I would imagine it's like for the guy who's hunting with a compound but used to hunt with a rifle who goes, shoot, I would have killed that buck with my rifle. Well, this is the first time in you know probably a decade that i've revisited that going man if i'd had a compound man if i'd had a compound that thing would have been dead i mean there were literally days when i could have killed half a dozen different bulls with a compound but i couldn't get you know in closer than 50 or 60 yards but with a you know with a compound it would have been it had been done for sure. It would have, I mean, you know, there's always those variables that the bull can certainly jump the string of the compound, just like a stick bow. But when you have half a dozen shot opportunities, you know, potential shot opportunities in a day inside a compound range, one of those bulls is going to stand still. <laughs> oh yeah. The, the one thing I want to make sure people need to realize, you know, with this and me coming from, you know, shooting a compound and a stick bow going back from a compound, uh, the pros and cons of this, South probably experienced more elk behavior in 13 days than most people will in 10 lifetimes. And if he would have tagged out on day one or two or three, he wouldn't have all of those crazy experiences and memories and watching two elk battle or, or whatever. So you do gain a lot for, you know, this, I don't, I don't want anybody to give me yeah. shit about this, but by not harvesting, one of the first things I learned uh, where by not killing as quickly with the stick was what I learned about one, just enjoyment being out the doors, you know, two, what I learned about myself and, and maybe that, um, you, you know, no matter what life is kicking at you or what the woods are kicking out of you, you can, you can get put in another gear, dig deep and keep going. And you get to see a lot of cool shit. So if you're someone trying to figure out if you want to shoot a compound or a stick, yes, you may kill in some cases quicker 
uh, with a compound. Some people maybe not. And in some situations, a stick is better, but you will be a much better hunter um, and, and your life will potentially be less simple or, or more simple with a, a stick. That That is my two cents, but do you have anything to throw in with that? Yeah, I mean, I, if you just look at back at like, so I've hunted there four years in the same unit, and uh, I was, you know, lamenting to another friend of mine that that hunted that same unit this year, and I was like, dude, man, there's, I, I was like, I've got no excuse. I should have filled my tag, and he's like, man, you killed bulls in there three out of four years at seventy five percent success rate, you know, with a stick bow. He goes, that's nothing to be ashamed about, and I, you know, and it's a hard when you. You, you know, when you're hard on yourself and you, and not that I'm a pessimist at all, I'm generally speaking the opposite. Um, but, you know, when I look at the opportunities I had and all of the ones that slipped through my fingers and it's hard to not be hard on yourself for not having notched your tag, but, you know, show me you know, a guy with a compound that, well, uh, did that guy, other guy that was uh, out there hunting, um, I don't know if he stayed in touch with you, the, the guy, I think he's from Wisconsin, um, did he, uh, Did he, he had a compound, did he end up killing a bull? No, you know? no, in fact, there's three people I know in that unit with, with a compound that didn't kill, didn't, didn't kill out. And the one dude took the whole month off. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I'm not like, you know, trying to, I guess I'm trying to prove a point to a degree, but I'm not trying to hammer any one individual. I'm just saying that, you know, it often, sometimes it's not, you know, the weapon in your hands. It's, you know, some good fortune and some is experience and what have you, but it could be done, you know, and done consistently and repeatedly with a stick bow. It's just, you can't make the mistakes I was making day in and day out on this hunt and I've made plenty of them um, and it just it cost me in the end and and I've got to own that it wasn't the weapon that I had in my hand though I put myself into the position with my stick bow in my hand that had I had a compound the results I feel like would have been different I would have had a uh, you know a bull but um, you know I certainly had the opportunities with the stick bow it was just it was up to me in the end and and I I didn't get it done. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, you know, it's it's a weird dynamic I'm in with this because of do when I say both, but both of us, right? But me recently going back to a compound is, I will say with all everything I have going on and everything else, there is a lot. There is a stress reliever because of my my personal and business life, meaning all the different businesses, much like South. Um, there's a lot going on. We have families to support and employees to keep busy that, um, you know, I mean, it, it is nice having the compound knowing that I have a little bit better chance. Mm-hmm. And one of the things yeah. though, is, is that, um, that may not be your cup of tea. You may want to be out there and in, in, in the, the, the harvest isn't as high, uh, on the list as the experience and things like that. I, I get that. Um, you know, I, I will say that, uh, I, I had some messages from people that had said, Hey, uh, how come you're not out in the field as much this year? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I started to think about it and, uh, it's pretty much been a one and done thing. I think I hunted for, well, with you would have been a total of a day. Um, so one, two, I've, I hunted four total days and, and killed three animals. 
Well, with the stick, that's mm-hmm. probably not the. <laughs> that's gonna be extended because I'm like, well, I've been in the field a bunch, been hunting my butt off. This has been great. Yeah. But I just haven't had the time out because right. quicker, quicker kill. But I've also not gotten to experience some of the things you sent me. Some of the videos, amazing things that you that five by five. I well, I would have had five arrows out my bow before most people had loaded one. That was one of the largest five by fives I've ever seen. Dude, I, it, it kills me too because after I post, I almost need to repost it after I um, crop it because you know you can pinch in and zoom in on it, but I should have cropped it and then posted it. But I didn't even think about it because uh, you know I just on my phone I just been pinching and zooming in on it, and that bull dude is was unreal and i had it at 50 yards that was one of the bulls i had at 50 yards and you know had i had a compound well had i had a compound i probably that because i saw that bull for the first time on day 10 and i'm sure had i had a compound i would have shot any number of bulls (laughs) you know before that if you would uh, have had a compound i would not have shot my elk i do know that (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I would have, I would have killed it first because I, yeah, I missed that bull coming in. I had a, I guessed that bull when it was, when I cow, you know, mouth called and stopped it, I guessed him at just over 20. And after I shot and shot underneath him, I ranged it and it was 27. And you just can't make that big of an error in range estimation with a stick bow. It's going to cost you every time. And I mean, I was too, that's a, that's a hell of a bull that you shot. It was, it would uh, it would have been something else had I been able to pinwheel that thing and and uh, then I mean it wouldn't only been a matter of another day or two likely and you would have killed your bull and we'd have been out of there in you know two or three or four days it would have been a whole different experience but that's not the way it worked out but I tell you I I explored some country after um, after you left that I can't wait to show you next year. It's going to be a ball. I mean, um, some, some badass country. And I hope that Levi said he's going to come in and film for us next year. I told him, I was like, dude, I don't want to drag you back there. If, you know, if you're not wanting, not in love with being in the mountains, he goes, Oh no, I guess the elk hunt was fine. Just the mule deer hunt was a little slow for me. And I'm like, well, you better start, stop drinking beer now and start jogging. Cause <laughs> I tell you what, that was an ass kicker going up there this year i i lost seven pounds while i was out there and i um had i have had you know better food that wasn't so junky while i was out there i probably would have hit double digits but i was eating a lot of crap while i was out there yeah the the thing that out there that i don't i you know i i eat like a horse as you know and i mean it is a it is a lot of climbing. I mean, it, there's a lot of miles put on mm-hmm. throughout the day. And, you know, when I tracked it the one day, um, you know, it, I think it was like 12 or 13, you know, roughly or whatever. And, and uh, it, it, last year was even more on a couple of days. But that 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 long term grind, you know, that long. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Like talking about like the cameraman having some issues and, you know, people messaging me that will leave a hunt early. Um, you really have to dig deep. Like, you know, for me, it's fun. Mm-hmm. I like being out there. Um, I have had a couple of the hunts like South, a couple of mule deer hunts where I'm pushing day 13, 14, ready to commit suicide. Cause I'm like, am I ever going to get this done or whatever yeah. with the stick? But uh-huh. you, you got to look at the brighter side of things and really also manage your own physical uh, longevity. Meaning you and I can go, 
pretty much, you know, you and I are pretty close to the same shape and, and we can go about the same time and about the same motivation level. So that, you know, and, and we both like being out there. A lot of people um, on day four or five of a hunt like that with that weather are done. Like they're, they're out. Um, yeah. It, I was, I, I, are you, you agree with that? I, I just, from what I see, people talk themselves off the mountain. Yeah, 100%. And also, you know, just to take that a little bit further, choosing your hunting partners wisely because that hunt right there, um, I I mean, I told Mitchell, dude, like by day eight, I'm like, man, here's the keys to my truck. You should go back to the trailhead, hop in your truck, in my truck, drive back home, and then I'll call you, you know, when I get out and you can just come down and pick me up. And uh, Mitchell is as tough as a boot leather, man. He's, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, wimping out or anything. It was, he was messed up from, you know, and I know that cause I've hunted with him now. This is, the third time I've been up there with him and he's been step for step, you know, with us the whole time. And, uh, I knew, you know, he was hurting, but I was like, dude, you, you know, you should not be out here right now. And he's like, no, dude, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you out here. And I, I certainly appreciate that. You know, if something would have happened to me or whatever, then at least I know that even on the last three days when I, you know, when I, um, when he had to stay in camp, then at least the next day when I didn't come home the night before, he would have known something was up. But uh, if you have somebody that's, you know, not mentally tough enough um, and you're relying on them as a hunting partner and they tap out, it's going to, you know, I mean, maybe depending on the way the circumstances are, you might be able to stay in while your hunting partner bails on you, but it might be one of those things where, you know, he drove to the trailhead and that's your ride home. And so you're going to end up having to leave with them. So that, that hunt right there that, that we just, that I just came off of with Mitchell was a grind and it, as hard as it was for me, it had to be been, you know, 10 times harder for him because one, it's not his tag in his pocket. So he's putting out all this effort and he's not even directly benefiting. You know, he's putting all this effort out for me. And then he's also doing this injured. So as hard as it is for me, I'm not experiencing the physical pain that he's going through. And I mean, so you get somebody like that, who's got that kind of mental fortitude and toughness. And that's the kind of person that you want to hook up with for a hunting partner yeah definitely and and i can't uh stress that uh, enough and even if the person's tough enough but an asshole that's really not good either you you know you want a good-hearted funny mm-hmm. you know person that, yep. that uh you know just as positive i mean don't get me wrong there's a couple times that where i think i looked and i was like man this rain blows and not in a good way good lord but i was laughing mm-hmm. and build you know, i yeah. uh yeah, yep. it, and, and and I'm not saying this is nothing negative towards the the you know the cameraman. It's just people need to be realistic of what their capabilities are, um, and not leave people depending on you because that we have a lot of good footage. My guys looking through it right now, but um, you're kind of fucked because I you know you didn't have a cameraman and you use this for for marketing so people can see your adventures and see the bows and things like mm-hmm. that. And that 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 was a uh, I literally was having a panic attack talking to my wife after talking to yours of, 
uh, Amy and I were loading the truck and I'm like, look, I'm going to go, just go back down there, um, and, and hike in. And then I talked to you and I'm like, okay, he seems all right. I'm, I'm actually going to have to go back to work and not go back down there. But I, I felt, I still feel fucking horrible, dude. Cause that kid promised me he was coming back in. I just talking to, mm-hmm. when I got down there, I was like, man, are you coming back? He's like, I'm going to go charge the batteries on my camera and do whatever and come back. And, uh, I mean, nothing against him. I just was, I wasn't overly thrilled about the situation, but it's lesson learned. So, yeah, I, I think in, in that circumstance, he just got himself in over his head. I mean, he, the dude, like I, like I said, you know, before he's was super positive kid in great shape, you know, so his physical conditioning wasn't the issue. I think what it came down to was, I don't know that he had been on a wilderness hunt removed from civilization, no cell coverage like that before especially for, you know, an extended period of time. Cause I mean, he's elk hunted before, but I think it's always been, you know, where you have, you know, you have that out where you're, you're car camping, you can run to town real quick if you want, or, you know, you got cell service so you can fart around on the internet or whatever. And the reality for us was that we were camped down in a hole and we only made it to the top of the, well, we never did make it to the top of the ridge when he was there. Um, you know, I didn't have service until like day seven or eight when I climbed all the way, you know, to the top most point is, you know, three plus miles and I don't know, probably pushing 3000 feet of elevation gain to where I got to the point where I, the first day that I was able to get cell service. And when, um, and I stupidly, here's another lesson too. Um, I knew you had a Garmin, um, and I knew he had a Garmin, so I didn't worry about activating my service and bringing mine with me. So if I needed to call for a meat haul, I had to go back up to the you know top of the ridge in order to be able to get out, or you know hike the ten miles back to the trailhead, drive back to town, or you know drive to where I had cell service. And and uh, lesson learned on that one because I figured okay, you know if Aaron tags out and he he takes off, then my camera guy's got service you know satellite messenger, so no matter what I'll be covered. But really from a you know injury standpoint or something like that, it was pretty stupid for me not to have had the, you know, that backup there. And that was on me on that one. Yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, I, you know, whatever you learn crap every time you go, you know, you go out, um, <clears throat> I, on this one, I tell you what I learned was um, I shouldn't have went. I shouldn't have left. And and uh, when I say that, meaning I have plenty of capable people here. It was more me, like anxiety, worrying about stuff back here that I probably didn't need to, you know, to worry about. But you know, for me, it wasn't the hike in. It was uh, you know the twelve hour drive back where I <laughs> looks like going. It's only twelve because I drove straight through the night to get home. And I got home like five in the morning and I literally was like, uh, you know what? I got 24 hours. I'll drive back down. And where I would screwed up, really, I should have left you my in reach and I didn't. I I messed up when we got back and I saw that I should have known the cameraman wasn't coming back. I should have thrown my inReach in, you know, I didn't know if you had the app or whatever. And I didn't, wasn't sure if you could link up to it. I thought you could, um, I should have left that in reach in there with you, but again, lessons learned, whatever won't happen anymore. It's just kind of a crappy deal. 
Yeah, well, I get it. I mean, being you know, being self-employed, I I I can remember, and it just that's the double-edged sword about cell service. I remember, I mean, just probably ten years ago, or or more than ten years ago, I had a. I was on a mule deer hunt. Yeah, it was probably 15 years ago. I was on a mule deer hunt in southern Colorado and, and uh, in this old area I used to hunt. And um, one of my guys quit <clears throat> in my construction company. And uh, I was the only one. He and I were the only ones that could do the job that he was doing when he quit. And I should have just, like, ignored it and stayed and hunted instead i think i was like three or four days into my 10-day hunt and when my secretary told me he quit when i called to check in one day i was like oh great man so i ended up tapping out and going home and i had a dude i was on a double drop time buck it was the coolest you know it just uh just those kind of things just eat me up you know when you look back at situations like that i should have just you know they would have they they would my client would have lived if his stairs didn't get installed for another week (laughs) instead you know i cut out a you know potential buck of a lifetime that opportunity to go back to my you know adulting responsibilities yeah well there there you go uh, it, it is what it is but i uh i think um next year i already had told uh my wife i was like i'm i'm uh, i'm not coming out at all uh next year i mean uh, the uh, and i'll be in a better position we just moved and everything else but the other thing too is i like seeing elk hit the ground and i also like seeing elk screaming and running around and i stayed for the worst part of the weather the weather was great oh, other yeah. than cold in the morning so right yeah, you definitely got shortchanged in the days that you stayed versus the the experiences I had after you left. I mean, even I I feel bad for Mitchell because <clears throat> that um, hidden basin I went to the day after you know or the day that he decided he you know couldn't leave camp. Um, I went up there and he was like, I I came back and was telling him about. It. He's like, dude, man, I'm so bummed I didn't go with you today and. And, uh, but he, you know, he was, like I said, he was pretty tore up from a physical standpoint, but he was, he was bumming. And then I went up there, I gave it a day of rest and I went back up there on the last day also. And I, you know, got into bulls again, saw that same big five again, saw the same, the big six point. And I went and over the other side of the ridge, saw some other new country and, and, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, that place up there is, uh, is something else. And, um, you know, if it was, you know, a regular public land elk hunt where you might go 10 days and have a couple of elk opportunities or encounters or something, but it's rich in, uh, you know, in, in elk encounters and <clears throat> tag in hand or not. I mean, I think that's why Mitchell's willing to give up a couple of weeks of vacation just so that he can have as much interaction, you know, with elk calling them and stuff like that. And, and, uh, so it's you, you know it's pretty neat in a you know in a in that 13 day time span um, I can't equate that to the number of years you know on an OTC unit that uh, I would have had to accumulate to have similar experiences let alone of the of the quality of bulls which is you know I saw more good bulls this year than I than I have you know probably in the three years combined that I've been up there and uh, part of that might have just been because of the duration of time that I was up there. I think the first year I hunted, I, I killed on day six. The second year, um, I killed on, well, it was probably, 
I don't remember what day it was, four or five. And then the last year was what, day three that we both killed? Yeah, day three. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, it, just time, you know, getting time in the woods there is when you really start to, to learn, you know, the more valuable lessons and, and, uh, and those the lessons that you need to learn over and over again, you get the opportunity to learn them. And uh, hopefully by the end of the hunt, you have it figured out. You're not screwing up doing the same thing like I was. Yeah, no kidding. Well, man, I think this is hour and 45 minutes, so I should probably get you off the horn between the, the first part and then uh, after the break. So, um, man, I can't I can't thank you enough for everything. And I did. I am I am terribly sorry that I left you hanging. I did not think that was uh, happening dude. when I left, but I but I yeah. did. It. I thought I was going to kill the next day. So. <laughs> I wasn't sweating it a bit, but, uh, yeah. Hey, a couple of PSAs. Um, one, I, I've, um, I've got a podcast also the Western Bowhunter podcast. And I'm going to be, um, I'm, I think I'm going to be interviewing, um, another buddy of mine that had a tag in that same unit and killed a nice bull to stick bow. I'm going to be interviewing him and his two brothers, um, that they, um, they've hunted it. Jeez. I think, uh, between the three of them, I think they've hunted it four times times in the last you know four or five years cashing in their non-resident points and uh and then um also we're getting uh um, you know, coming, kind of coming into the fall, into our post-fall for hunting season for us, but we're catching up on bow orders, so our lead times are shrinking. And right now we're looking at like three to four weeks for delivery time. If you're wanting to get a bow, this is the time to do it. If you want a, you know, relatively short um, lead time, because once we get after the first of the year, they typically push out to three or four months. Gotcha. Well, yeah, and I, I have to say, I was I was laughing when we were hiking around, climbing over deadfall, um, thinking, you know, if I bent a cam or whatever, I was looking at your bow, and I'm like, well, I'll just kill it with South's bow. We'll have to swap back and forth, but I, I'll make it. I'll make yeah. it work. Um, yeah, I, uh-huh. I've had I've had a few of South bows. I was looking through photos this morning. Um, you know, one of the coolest. Uh, my mountain goat uh, I killed uh, with your wolverine and uh, obviously the bow is a lot more beautiful before I took it on the goat and, and the uh, the mule deer hunt that yeah. year um, and I also uh, I, I killed my largest whitetail um, 176 uh, with a stalker so definitely check them out uh, it's South's an inc- incredible craftsman um, uh, they seem to be lucky uh, for me and put animals on the ground so Right on. Yeah, one other thing, too. I, um, so I put out a couple of DVDs over the years of some of my early mule deer adventures, and I think I'm going to take that last DVD because I have it all um, still on you know, in digital files, and uh, I'm going to start posting up those hunts over the winter um, on my YouTube page, the Stalker Stickbo's YouTube page, and it'll be Stalker Retro Hunts or something like that to that effect. But I've got five mule deer hunts that I'll work on posting up over the winter just to keep people uh, interested and, and non for next year there. Gotcha. Well, cool. Well, right on, man. I guess we should probably both go back to work. But again, thank you again. Yeah. Uh, it's always a pleasure hunting with you as well. You're, you're a one of a kind yeah, dude. Likewise. Somebody I never have to worry about, which is nice. So thank you. Right on, man. Thank you. I right, enjoyed it as well. All right. Alrighty. Take it easy. Bye.